One of the things I love about our church, one of the many things that I love about our church is after church. After church, what I see is people helping set up and pull down chairs, put them up here, break down. But also the lights go up and everybody chats. Everybody, if you notice, we're being in a circle and talking, talking, talking for long periods of time. And honestly, I don't, I don't say that as a knock. As a matter of fact, if, if we're ever in a place as a church where we're shutting down the lights and people aren't still here talking, I'm going to wonder what's going on. It's a beautiful thing in the community life of a church. But if you've noticed, or maybe you've had this experience here or elsewhere, you know, if you're coming into a conversation or a group of people that are already having a conversation and you come into the middle of it, the social etiquette is just to sit and listen to the conversation. But what you're probably doing, especially if the conversation is interesting, is going, man, what did I miss? And you're trying to listen to see where the conversation is going, but it's a little bit frustrating sometimes to enter the middle of a conversation. And maybe you've experienced that as well. You get on your phone and you get movie tickets to the movie that you want to see and the traffic's bad or something happens at home and you've already paid for the movie and you go anyway even though you're crazy late, not like 15 minutes late where you're fine and you're on time, but like 30, 45 minutes late to the movie and you show up and you're frustrated because you're too far in and you don't know what's happened and you don't know exactly where the storyline is going. See, catching the story in the middle is frustrating and it doesn't help you understand the big picture of the story anymore. If you're a reader and you're reading a novel, you would never begin in the middle of the story. And yet, we come to a Christmas season and we come to Advent, we come to the Gospels and the story of a baby born in a manger, and we often think, man, that's the beginning of the story. It's certainly the important piece of the story as we're looking at Christmas, but it would be wrong to assume that this is the beginning of the story. And so this morning, we're going to look back as we've got four weeks to do this. We're going to look back at the real beginning of the Christmas story, and you could argue, hey, Christmas started in the mind of God, and that is true. And maybe you go, well, maybe it's not the beginning of the story, the story of a baby born in a manger, but I know there's promises, right? There's promises of a Messiah to come, but I would say it starts even before that. Why do we need Christmas? That's the question today. What we often address, because we live in a culture in a time where we have all kinds of other uh, thoughts and all kinds of other things that Christmas represents to us. Maybe it's family, maybe it's decor inside, maybe it's winning the, the light show outside in your neighborhood, maybe it's food, two weeks off of school, kids. And we often remind ourselves and we remind our kids that Christmas isn't just about presents, but it's about Christ. But the question this morning isn't what Christ, Christmas is about, it's this, why do we need it? Why the promise even? And so I want you to turn with me back to the beginning in Genesis, the book of beginnings in chapter 6 of Genesis, and we'll be in verses 5 through 8. This is page 5 in your Bible. You don't have to go far. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 through 8, and we're going to see the root need that Christmas meets. Before we come to the light of Christ, we first have to look deep into the darkness, Genesis 6, 5 through 8, you're going to see God's sobering verdict and judgment upon his creation. 
you're going to see how God responds and how he even feels about the condition of his creation. And then you're going to see what he does about it. Genesis 6, 5 through 8. Let me read these sobering words from Moses. Genesis 6, 5 through 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man. Merry Christmas, y'all. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And you're thinking about this passage and you're going, this isn't a passage about Christmas. It actually tells us exactly the problem that we have, that Christmas and the death and resurrection of Christ meets. Why the need for Christmas? Your first thought is this, from verses five and six. It's sin. It's sin in the heart of man that grieves the very loving heart of God. That's why we need Christmas, because there is sin in our hearts. And notice, if you look at verse five, if you look at verse five, it's not only that they commit sins. It's something else. It's much deeper. It's this. It's that our intention of our hearts is bent towards sin continuously. And I don't know about you, but when you read Genesis, maybe in January you're going to start a new uh, Bible in a year program, and you read like three chapters the first day of Genesis, then you read the next three chapters, and you get to chapter six, and you read these sobering words of God, and go, that was quick. Like you got upset about this deal really quick, but here's what we know. It's 1,650 plus at least years from the time of Adam when Adam sinned against God to this point. So God has been putting up with the sin and the wickedness of man for 1,650 plus years. And just a slight review would be this. Adam and Eve fall into sin. Why? Because they want to live for self. They think they can do it better the serpent whispers in their ear, you can do it better. God's holding out on you. They want self-love, self-glory, self-rule. And you see the results of that, that there's cursings. And then you flip one page and you see the offspring of Adam and Eve. You see Cain, bitter and jealous of his brother who offered a good sacrifice. And God says, don't do it. And he kills his brother Abel. And then you see the descendants of Cain. And they're worse than Cain. There's more bloodshed that they have than Cain. They make fun of Cain because he didn't kill enough. There's polygamy in the Bible. The first time you see polygamy in the Bible is Cain's descendants. And then you see death in chapter 5 of this genealogy. And you come to chapter 6, and now you start seeing this perversion, this weird perversion of marriage. And God says, enough. That it grieves his heart. The sin of man grieves his heart. The New Testament says it this way. About sin in our hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 15 says this. 
This is why we have the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. This is why we have the gospel. It's a great summary. Look at it. Verse 15, 2 Corinthians 5. And he died, Christ, for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for his sake, died and was raised. No longer live for themselves. This is what you see in Adam and Eve. I'm going to live for myself. There is self-love. There is self-rule. There is self-glory. All the way up to chapter 6 in Genesis, it's true of our hearts as well, is it not? And maybe you say, well, I'm a Christian now, and that represented me before I knew Christ, but it doesn't represent me now. See, we believe that the power of sin is broken, but the presence of sin still remains. And so Sunday, it's the beginning of the week. I don't know how many of you wake up early on Sunday, but when, whenever you plan out your week, do you plan your week to serve your spouse and your kids and the people at your work and think of a million ways to serve others? You go, how am I going to get me time this week? So we often are focused and we live for ourselves. That's the root problem. That's the problem of pride in our heart that we see. This is why relationships are so hard. This is why marriage is so hard. There's a few young married couples in here going, man, I'm six months in. And we got lots of problems because you know what you're doing? You're taking two different lives with two different schedules, with two different people that have been used to living on their own, their own way, and you put them together and you argue about stupid things like toilet paper, up or down, toothpaste, how to organize or not organize. You figure out a lot about each other and you're saying, it's my way. My way is the only way. Tension. You think about that in marriage. You think about that with friends. If you really have deep and abiding relationships with friends that you love, it's hard. It's hard work because you have sinful people that are bent, naturally bent to say, me. To live for self. You see it in your family. This is why you read James Dobson or Paul David Tripp to figure out parenting. Because you produce those same kind of little people. Right? And we love our little people. But you don't have to teach them how to want something for themselves. Have you ever gone on a long road trip? You, you can see this whole 2 Corinthians 5 playing out in your life where we live for ourselves. Like get in a big old car with a bunch of people in your family who you love. And go on a long road trip. Paul David Tripp uses this example a lot. I re, it just comes to mind when I think of this. But he, he, he recalls, in a, this is a parenting seminar. I think he uses it in the marriage seminar too. Um, and he talks about this long road trip that his family took. And in the back, you have his son Ethan and his little daughter. Well, Ethan had some allergies. And so he was having trouble breathing. He was sneezing. He was sniffling all along this road trip. And Paul David Tripp says that his daughter said, Daddy, Ethan's bothering me. And Paul David Tripp says, well, what is he doing? He's breathing. <laughs> and Paul David Tripp says, well, well he's respirating, right? What, what do you want me to, to do about Ethan, your brother, who's breathing? Tell him to stop. And that's the way we are. See, we're, it's built in. It's built in that we live for ourselves. We want what we want. 
There's sin in the heart of man that is indicative and seen from Genesis 1 through 6, but we also see it in our hearts every day. That the intention of our hearts are set upon ourselves. This is the problem that Christmas deals with. How does God respond to 650 plus years of man being about man? If you know God's design, his design is that man knows him and worships him. And that's where life is found. That's where flourishing is found. That's what you see in the garden. That flourishing for us is found in making much of him and knowing him and relationship with him and loving him. And they've decided for 650 years, now I'm going to love me. How does God respond to that? Then, how would he respond to it now? Look at it. How does God feel about it? And I think we can say that. How does God feel and respond to his creation who loves themselves? You see the grief here? The pain in the heart of God? That he was so pained in his heart that he was sorry that he made man. Now listen, here's what this isn't. This is, this is important. Here's what this isn't. Listen, God never has a bad day, all right? You think about your own life and someone wrongs you or is selfish and it ruins your whole day. This never ruined God's day. God is holy other. And so he's grieved by his creation's sin in their hearts and their intentions, but he never has a bad day. He's not anxious. He's not discontented about it. There's never a time where any of this has been out of his providential sovereign control. And yet he's grieving over their sin. Why is he grieving over their sin? Because he loves them. He grieves over our sin because he loves us. This is the heart of God. So sin in the heart of man grieves the very loving heart of God. This demonstrates his love for his creation, his aim for their best, his aim for their good. This is his design. And you need not look any further than the life of Jesus to see these responses, these emotions, in a sense, in the heart of God. Jesus grieved. He grieved over people's sin. He grieved over his disciples' unbelief. He was compassionate for the sinner that everybody else had thrown out. He wept for the death of his friend. He felt. And they demonstrate in Jesus' life his love, his compassion, and his justice. He was angry at sin and what was happening in the temple. This is what you see in the heart of God. We understand that to a certain extent. It's different. But if you're like over five years old, you've at least felt what you think to be like a relational betrayal in your life where you trusted someone and they threw you under the bus and they used that trust against you. They betrayed your trust. You demonstrated love and they betrayed you. And you've done that to others. I remember also a time when I was in high school and I got in trouble a lot. And I remember my parents. I'd gotten in some pretty significant trouble and there was going to be consequences to that, not only inside the home, but just in life as well, at school. And I remember my parents, and I, I hated listening to my parents, kids. I, I hated listening to my parents, just like everybody else, telling me about what I did was wrong, 
and what the consequences were. I didn't want to hear the 15,000 speeches. I still got them, and I still give them. But what I remember about the conversation is this. I watched my mom and dad sitting on the stairs in our house, and me sitting below, and I watched them weep. And that didn't just communicate justice. It communicated love. And I could figure that out as a rebellious 15-year-old. God grieves over our sin that's in our hearts, that's in our intentions. This is the need that Christmas meets. Do you see God as a father, maybe unlike your earthly father, do you see God as a father who grieves over your sin out of a heart of love for you? See, that's the right perspective. It's the wrong perspective to believe, well, he just didn't want me to have any fun. I don't want to be accountable, therefore I don't want God. He grieves over your sin because he loves you. The question maybe for us is, do we grieve over our own sin? Do we see it as he sees it and do we grieve over it? Why do we need Christmas? There is sin in the heart of man. That man, most importantly, cannot fix. That grieves the heart of God. So how will God respond? That's the next question. How does God respond to grief in his heart and sin in the heart of man? How would you respond to your creation if for 650 plus years turned the other way? Love themselves, does not love you. How would you respond? Praise God, I'm not God. Verse 7 and 8, look at it. Verse 7 and 8 teach us how God responds. He responds in two ways. Look at verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot man out whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of heavens. That's the flood. If you know biblical history here and what's coming, there is justice for sin, always. If there isn't, God is not just. He's not a good judge if he's not willing to be just. That's why we call him God, because he's both just and, look at it, he is also gracious. And when you think about God's justice, maybe you come to this text and you go, wow, like they've been bad, but that seems completely over the top to flood the whole world and kill everything almost. That's not, what do we say? That's not fair. We say that. We say that in our best and worst moments. We don't understand. It's not fair. But when we say that, what we need to remember is we don't really want fair from God because we all sit in the flood. We all are deserving in our sin of the flood, of his justice. He's just to do that. And if he chooses to pull anybody out of that, he's merciful. It's not him being unfair. We all deserve what we have coming because of sin and death. And he pulls us out. That's mercy. That's grace. Here's your second thought today. While God always responds justly, he also extends his incredible grace. Look at it here. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord 
The word favor is the word in Hebrew we get for grace, gift. If you read a couple of verses later, what you see the Bible saying is that Noah was a righteous man. There was nobody as blameless in him in all the earth. He was good. And so sometimes people have the tendency in a passage like this to go, the reason God showed Noah favor is because he looked down the corridors of time and said, he's good and he's going to be good, therefore I'm going to extend grace to him. That ain't right. Grace comes and then goodness is produced. That's how it works. Okay? God doesn't give gifts like Santa Claus. If you're naughty, you don't get anything. If you're nice, you get something. We all fall in the naughty category. God doesn't give gifts like Santa Claus. We all are in this category, and he gives us his gifts of grace, even when we're undeserving. If you don't believe that, look at the rest of Noah's life that you see. What, what do you see? You see him be drunk, and then he's naked. He would have got he would have got a ticket in today's age for indecent exposure to minors. This guy's righteous, but he's got problems just like us. See, God extends unmerited favor to Noah that Noah didn't deserve. Noah deserved to be in the flood like everybody else. And God said, no, I'm pulling you out. And I'm going to show you grace and if you know the narrative of Genesis, you know that grace is rooted in God's grace, but it's also rooted in God's truth. Because what we find in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve fall into sin, is almost immediately, like eight verses later, there's a promise of a baby born to a woman who will crush the serpent's head. And so they've been looking since Adam and Eve for that promised Messiah to come. Maybe they thought it was Cain or Abel. Maybe they thought it was Noah, whose name means rest and deliverance. We find out it wasn't Noah. But guess what? The flood happens, and God wipes everybody out. That promise doesn't go forward. God is a God of promise, and he keeps his word. So this grace is rooted in his character, and it's also rooted in the promise you see in Genesis 3, a couple chapters before. Maybe you need a little more help to understand God's justice and his grace. They work together. They don't work separately. That's a huge challenge for people to go, how is God loving and merciful and just? This is what God says about himself in Exodus chapter 34. Look at it up here or turn there with me. He's giving Moses the, the new tablets of the, of the law, and he says this about himself. This is a beautiful passage. To put the character of God, all the pieces, or some of the pieces of the character of God into place. Verse 5 says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses, him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, a God, look at the characteristics he says about himself. This is how he's self-identifying himself. This is who he is from his lips. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression of sin. That's God's love and his grace and his mercy. But he's also something else. Look at it. Who will by no means leave the guilty, what? Unpunished. God is just and he is loving. And look at Moses' response. This is really instructive for us when we're trying to put God's justice and God's grace and love together. What's Moses' response to God proclaiming to him who he is? And Moses quickly bowed his head. There's reverence. There's not, what are you talking about? How do those things go together? Toward the earth and did what? He worshiped. What's your response to a just and loving, gracious God? I have, and then he says this, if now I have found favor, Moses, grace in your sight, which he has, please, he's asking the Lord, he's praying to the Lord in his grace that he's extended to him. Please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Be present with us. You've shown me grace. You've shown me favor. I believe you are just. I believe you are gracious and loving. Let me be near you. For we are a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity. Forgive us and our sin and take us for your inheritance, for your family. So maybe the questions for us today are these. How do we respond to the loving grace and gift of God and his justice. Is it like Moses here? Is it worship? Is it reverence? Or we say, nope, doesn't fit my version of God. He's not playing by my rules. I'm out. And secondly, do you see yourself as a person in need of God's rescuing grace? You know, when I think of Noah, I think of this type of Christ to come. Noah, the one who would comfort and bring rest, takes his family and there's deliverance through the judgment and that's exactly what Christ does. He gives us rest. He calls a family to himself, his bride, and he takes us out of judgment and gives us his grace and his rest. It's a beautiful picture. Do you know that truth? Do you believe that truth? Because left to yourself, there's no way out. There's no way out. The ark is shut. Well, why do we need Christmas? Sin. Why does God offer Christmas? Grace. That's it. We got nothing. It's grace. Speaking of gifts, let me ask you this question. What do you want for Christmas? What do you want for Christmas this year? Some of you got a list. You could tell me right now. What do you need most for Christmas this year? A few months ago, in my crew, in my family, I started hearing this kind of low burn uh, want coming out of some folks in my family for Christmas, all right, a few months ago. It started slow, and it just kind of built to a fever pitch, pitch of like want, all right? 
And being the great leader of my home, just leader of my home, I totally caved. I actually caved early. We're not even to Christmas yet. Here's what we did. Here you go, right here. We got a picture. Huh? See? I caved early. And the truth is, I was kind of uh, bah humbug about this deal because we already have another dog, two rabbits. I don't know how we're taking vacation if y'all want to keep our animals. Um, but I'm pretty much dad of the year, I'm pretty sure, and um, husband of the year for it. Humility and how I achieved it. This is Bluebell, and I was pretty grumpy about it, and then I met her yesterday. We got her yesterday. She's pretty cute. I really like her. I'm pretty smitten over this dog. Just lost my man card. It's pretty great. Christmas gift for our family. And listen, I love the gift of this little dog, but this gift wasn't free. All right, it wasn't free. I'm going to start getting looks here in a minute. There was a significant cost involved for this little one, this cute little one. You can take it down now. People aren't paying attention to what I'm saying not only was there significant cost, this little thing requires work. Claire could tell you because last night she was in Claire's room. Work. Pees all over the place, cries, bites, plays, needs training, lots of training. Significant cost requires work. And here's the deal. This gift was not all-inclusive, all right? The lady who, gave, who we bought this thing for gave us a few things, but this little dog needs a lot more uh, needs or wants, I don't know how that works out, accessories, travel crate, crate for home, bones, food, cute collar or collars, shots, vet bills. It's the gift that keeps on taking, right? <laughs> I love our dog. Listen, even the best, right? Even the best of gifts this earth has to offer, which I'm, I'm my family saying this is the best gift ever right now, can't compare with the gift you need the most. The Christmas gift that is undeserved but free. The gift that requires no work that you just receive. The gift that, does, that you don't have to accessorize at all. The gift that doesn't diminish in worth. The gift that keeps on giving. Your takeaway today is this. Jesus is the undeserved gift of God's grace, and it's for you, and you need it. Have you received that beautiful, undeserved gift of his grace in Jesus? Are you grateful for it? Are you looking for something else this Christian Christmas? Do you rejoice in it? Or maybe you're here because somebody drug you here. Maybe you're here and going, I don't buy all this. Have you rejected the ultimate gift, the gift that you need the most because there is sin in your heart that you cannot fix yourself? Are you indifferent to this beautiful gift that keeps on giving? See, there's no greater need than the undeserved free gift of grace that is only found in Jesus. And this morning we start really at the beginning of the story, so that we can appreciate the magnitude of the rest of the story. 
And as we move into next week, we're going to move into the promise. We've gone from the patriarchs and understanding our need, and next week we're going to move to the promise, the promise of Messiah to come who brings a sure hope, someone who is worth putting our faith in. So join us next week as we continue to consider the rest of the story. Let me pray.